you know, it's, it's, it's really the music was great. I'm, I'm so glad I became a Christian and started growing in Christ to catch the songs you just sang. I mean, I, I enjoy the contemporary music as well, but I want to give you a testimony about myself. And first is, that's me. <laughs> it really is. Somewhere around 1976. So it's been a while. Um, now, this guy, this guy that you're looking at, he grew up in an in Episcopal church, and I respected the Bible, but I was really more afraid of the Bible. It was a mystery, but I knew it was important. I hadn't gotten the bad teaching to tell me that it's just a book. It's just another book. And so my brother was, um, bless him, he was almost killed in a car accident, and because of that, I ended up at Pentego Bible Church in Arlington. And one of the first things I noticed were the girls. <laughs> and they were a lot prettier than my other church. And there were a lot more of them. So that was, that was definitely a keeper right there. Um, so, but, you know, I kind of got involved in the college class and it was, you know, it was a place. I hadn't had a place before. So we had a, we had a guest speaker uh, come for an evening service. Remember those? Sunday night service, y'all remember that? All right, and his name was Josh McDowell. Never heard of him. And he was, his new book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he was talking about the primacy of the Bible and how awesome it was. And I can tell you, I was spellbound. And when it was over, we had a new college director. I can still remember making my way through the pews to that guy. And I said, I had no idea that what we believe is true. Now you think about that, that there's really evidence about this. I want to know more. And that was the beginning of my discipleship. But it was that man and that information. So you're going, where's he going with this? Is this an apologetics message? Kind of. But where it is, is... There was some discussion about the long or the short ending of the Gospel of Mark. Well, Kyle gave you the majority position. I'm going to give you a minority report because I'll tell you up front, I believe it is original, the longer ending. So we're going to start with those strange notes. And I'm going to try real hard. Not, I told Kyle I wasn't going to throw him under the bus. So keep me accountable. Don't let me throw him under the bus. So what do those strange notes in the Bible mean? So first off, we're going to do two. Mark 16 said, later manuscripts add 9 through 20. And then in, in John 7, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Did you all know that was disputed as well? Do you know the ending of the Lord's Prayer is disputed? I think it should be included, by the way. Absolutely. And I'm going to tell you why it's excluded, and I'm going to give you pictures. So, by the way, I just wanted you to know that the notes in 1995 have become deletions in 2020. So, we're in my 1995 New American Standard, which is standing up here, there's a note. Newer versions, newer translations, they just take some of these out. They just, they're just gone. So, what are the later manuscripts they're talking about? Is my Bible reliable? See, that's important to me. That is big time important to me. And did God preserve his revelation or not? And is my faith built on rock and sand? That's the, those are the questions. 
that should come to our mind when we see this. So let's talk about, so what's the original text? The original gospel of Mark or John. So was it on one scroll? You know, did they write it on one big long piece of paper? Were the words of Jesus in red? Good question. How did John's handwriting compare to Paul's handwriting? And none of you smarties say, Paul didn't write his own stuff. I know that. He wrote, he wrote some of it. And where is the original? So that raises the question, where's the original New Testament? What is the, the original? You know, the one that God, inspiring through the author, put the pen to paper. Just think about that process. I mean, if I was writing it, I would be scared to death. I wouldn't, want to miss, I wouldn't want to mess it up. And God would say, don't worry, you can't screw it up. It's going to be right. It's gone, it's lost, or it's not recognizable. If we have it, we don't know. Because if somebody had written original on it, the next copyist would have put down original. Some of you who sing in the choir, they stamp on our music or in the orchestra, original, do not copy. And then they make lots of copies. <laughs> and everyone says, original, do not copy. It's beautiful. All right, so now, time, usage, weather, frail materials cause the original books to be lost. So we're dependent on copies. All right, so now, the original, just so you know, is called the original autograph, okay, like your signature. It's the original autograph. It's the one that had the real handwriting on it. And so let's go on. Copies, copies everywhere. So we have copies of the New Testament. We have lots of copies. All right, so the copies are called manuscripts. And so you're going to see MSS, and that's a short way of saying manuscript. So that's when you see that. I don't want you to get confused, because some of this is going to be kind of technical, and I don't want to bore you. I've really tried to not say dumb it down, because I know you're smart, but not make it where it's boring. All right, so the New Testament was written in Greek, and there are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. There's full copies, and there's partial fragments that we have, all right? So there's a lot of manuscripts, and you think, well, 5,000 nothing. There's millions of Bibles out there. Well, the New Testament is the best documented ancient book in world history. Nothing is close. So how do we know this? Let me give you an example. Homer's Iliad, which is probably the biggest deal in the ancient world. It was number one, Homer's Iliad. It was written around 900 B.C., and there is 643. 643 manuscripts versus 5,000. And the oldest manuscript is 400 B.C. That is a gap, look at it, 500 years. What were you doing 500 years ago? Not much. Let's take another one. The Poetics of Aristotle, it was written around 343 B.C., and there's five. How many of you read Aristotle in college or in school? Five manuscripts. Oh, that's, that's authority. The oldest manuscript is 1000 A.D. How many years? 1,400 years. That's a long time. Caesar's History of the Gallic Wars. I have a copy of that where he is narrating it in the original Latin. It's an audiobook. I'm just kidding. 
some of you are looking at me like, really? I'm like, if you were, we need to do some financial dealing later on. All right, manuscript quantity, I'm kidding. There's manuscripts written around 58 to 50 BC. Manuscript quantity was 10, and the oldest manuscript is 1000 AD. Think about the, that gap. It's a thousand year gap. Nobody argues about that book. So, what about the New Testament? And oh, by the way, in terms of number of words, Homer's Iliad and the New Testament, they're about the same. They're close. All right, so let's look. The New Testament evidence. It was written between 40 and 90 A.D. There's 5,300 plus manuscripts. Let's say that again. There's 5,300 manuscripts. Does that mean there's a lot? Yes. The oldest manuscript is somewhere dates between 100 and 150 A.D. That's 10 to 60 years. Do you see the difference? 500, 1,000 years, and we're talking 50? Exactly. Now, that oldest manuscript is just a fragment. I'll show you a picture of it. All right, so let's look. So, there, the, again, the New Testament is the best documented ancient book in the world. There's nothing as close. So, there, but there's more copies. It's better yet. It's kind of like I'm selling tape or something like that. But there's more. That's it. There's more. First, the Latin Vulgate. There's 10,000 copies of the Latin Vulgate. 10,000 copies of that. And so you can compare those copies to the Greek and see what they were translating from. That's why that's important. The other translations, there's other languages like Coptic. I don't know if you all ever hear about the Coptic Christians in, in Egypt. Well, their language, there's lots of copies, Coptic language copies, Ethiopian language copies that are out there. There's over 9,000 of those. And the church fathers, they quoted lots of the New Testament. So you have their quotes. Now, do you think when they're writings, they're going to just wing it? What else are they doing? They're going to make it right. They respect God's word. So there's many manuscripts to choose from. So I'm going to focus on this one to start with. This is called the John Rylands Manuscript. It's a papyri. It's number. It has a number. If you have a Greek New Testament, the number of it would show up in the book, in the bottom. They have down here in the bottom, they reference these numbers. And the Gospel of John was written about 85 to 90 A.D. And that's Papyrus 52, and that's a piece of it. It's both sides. Okay, so it's two sides. And it's two-sided. I'm getting ahead of myself. It dates between 100 and 150 A.D. It's pretty incredible. There's at least four to 11 New Testament manuscripts that are 2nd century. Now, we always think, what's 2nd century? That's like 200? No, 2nd century would be like 100. Like John the Apostle hasn't finished rotting in the grave yet kind of time. So, lots of copies mean textual variations. Variations exist but don't affect our faith, so we're going to talk about that. Just so you know, textual criticism is not where you sit around and go, that's pretty lousy. You're not being critical. It's, it's a critical evaluation. It's a process to determine which variation is original to the autograph. Remember, we talked about the autograph. All right, so let's go. So the Bible is trustworthy. A couple of things we want to know is, first, God is going to preserve his scripture. And Isaiah 48, word of God stands forever. Matthew 5, 18, the smallest letter or least stroke. Think about that. 
is not going away. 2 Timothy 3.16, Scripture is God-breathed. So God says, I'm going to preserve my word, right? He says, I'm going to keep it, and it's going to be kept for you. But variant readings don't alter our theology. Before I get to there, I wanted to mention something. When I I was preparing for this lesson, especially in the longer ending of Mark, if you go out there on the Internet, you'll see people say things like, "The, the, the regular ending was lost. It was lost, so somebody added somebody something in. They created a new ending. You know what my response to that was? Poor God. Poor God. He just can't keep his word together. <laughs> Think about that. You see somebody that writes something like that, that the original ending is lost, gone. First off, it refutes those verses. But second, what kind of God do we serve that can't keep a piece of paper attached at the end of a book? I think our God is better than that. I think he's much bigger than that. All right, so let's look. They don't affect our theology, don't worry. 95% are insignificant. Now you're going to think, man, there must be a lot of them. There's really not, especially compared to something like the Iliad. Spelling, word order, that kind of stuff. 5% affect the text's meaning and doctrines are never based on disputed passages. The sad thing is, people will spill ink over a weird word based on a a version of a manuscript when if you just go to the other manuscript, you have a better word there. We'll talk about that. Okay, inerrancy and textual criticism are compatible. So, remember, inerrancy talks about, is it absolutely God's word in the original autograph? Nobody's saying that every copy is inerrant. It's the original. So what do textual critics have to work with? Well, first, manuscripts are classification. Manuscripts are classified by location and quantity and age and type. This is where we're going to get a little more technical, so I don't want to lose you. That is a map. <laughs> See, I want to keep it simple. And that is a map of the Mediterranean area. This is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, God used as kind of an incubator um, to uh, preserve and propagate his word. So what did he do? So first off, the location and quantity are called text types. Text types. First is the western text type. It's found in the area around Rome. See the W? Did y'all see the W show up? Isn't that pretty cool? If you didn't see it, here it is right there. I just messed up totally. Let's go back. There we go. Back, back. Okay, let's see if I can push one button. There it is, right there. So the manuscript count, there's not that many of them. And the environment is wet. I've never been to Italy, and I've read about it, but I've heard things like Italian mud. You know, especially the soldiers during World War II, they talked about the Italian mud. It must rain. you got to have rain in order to have mud. Now, I want you to do the... Try an experiment, if you don't believe me, take a piece of bond paper that you maybe use for your copier and lay it out in, under the sprinkler for a few years. And tell me how it handles that. Well, multiply that over hundreds of years. Paper, things like that, vellum, whatever, is not going to make it. It's just not going to last. So you're not going to have many, and what you're going to have are going to be fairly recent. All right. Next is the Byzantine tactic text type. That's up here in Asia Minor. 
And it's called that because of the Byzantine Empire, which was the eastern half of the Roman Empire, around Antioch, Syria. It's the vast majority, and we're talking vast majority. 95% of the manuscripts are Byzantine. The environment there is also wet. It gets rain. The last is the Alexandrian text type, Alexandria, Egypt. There's very few of them, but the environment is very dry, very dry. Did I say it was dry? No, it is dry. If you like sand, it is, it is dry, very dry. So it, those are where these special old manuscripts were found. So let's talk about it. So the different types of manuscript type is papyri, unseals, and minuscules. There's going to be a test afterwards. There's none. I'm just kidding. So the papyri is very fragile. There's only 88 of them. There's not that many. Remember, papyrus are made out of the plants, and they smash them down, and they cross them together and, in order to make it. So they date between 200 A.D. and 800 A.D. They give that P number. Remember the John Rylands I showed you? It has that P number. That's a papyri. All right? It's from Egypt. They're the earliest New Testament copies. Then the unseals. They write in uppercase. And I'm going to show you a picture of an unseal, and you'll notice they don't space between the words either. Try that one on. Actually, go in and take a paragraph and take all the spaces out between words. You can read it. You, you can, but they didn't do it. There's 274, at least at this time, and they were, they were between 300 A.D. and 1,000 A.D., and they have a letter or a number preceded by zero. And the very important ones are from Egypt. So remember, these first two are from Egypt but they're very small. Now look here on the minuscules. They're lowercase, so it's lowercase Greek letters. There's 3,000 of those, full manuscripts, I think, and they date, notice the date, 900 A.D. to 1500 A.D. That's the problem. Do you see the disconnect? When you're dealing with 3 and 200 and 900, scholars are going, that's a long time. We'll talk about it. They're given a number, or they just put in, the, in, the, in the text here, BYZ. Why do they do that? Because there's so many. There's significant agreement between those particular manuscripts, but it's ignored by most 20th century scholars. And I'm not a scholar, so take it for what it's worth. All right, so how does this help? Textual criticism methods consistently requires a method. So here's the methodology. The first is called the Westcott-Hort method. These are two old guys that lived in the 19th century. And there basically is the oldest. Take the oldest. It's the 20th century scholarly approach. I put that in quotes. Probably shouldn't have because that's rude. But um, um, it's the Alexandrian text type. Remember, down in Egypt, very dry, nothing decays. Down in Egypt, down there. Now, the majority text method is saying, go with the most. And if you look at it, it's used by the reformers, the King James Version. It regained interest in the last part of the 20th century. And it's the Byzantine text type has priority. Now, let me tell you how this works. This is the Greek text I used when I was in seminary. It's called UBS 3, which stands for United Bible Societies Number 3. There's probably like UBS 20 now, because it was so long ago. But... It, it's, a, it's a great text, 
And it's used for things like the New American Standard, New International, English Version, and it is primarily looking at the Westcott Hort. Now I'm going to talk about this, but this is my 1973 New American Standard. Remember that testimony? It says, to Stuart, with all my love in Christ, Merry Christmas, 1977, Mom. This is from my mother. So I now, my eyes aren't what they used to be, so I have my giant print 1995 New American Standard, which all my friends say, where did you get that Bible? And I say, I, it's not available anymore. I just got lucky one day. Now, the majority text. When I was at seminary, there was a guy by the name of Zane Hodges, and he took, the, he took it on himself to, he created the first critical majority text, meaning using just the majority text as priority. And he put this together. And so I was, I was finishing up seminary at the time, and here's a copy of it. What did, it, what did the majority text use? Well, this right here is the ultra-thin King James right here. Your, your famous... King James Version, it used the majority text. That's why it's so important. Out online, if you go to, I'm not pushing it, I'm just telling you, somebody put together this, which is called the English Majority Text Version, the EMTV. Never heard of it, I'm sure, but if you go to majoritytext.com, I use this one for my quiet time because I believe in the majority text. And so that's the full disclosure here. I believe the majority text is the best. Now, it's a, it's a great Bible, except he left room in the margins for you to make notes. And so he used a small type of text so you can't read it. <laughs> but other than that, it's great. So for my quiet time, I put it on my scanner and I enhance it 20%. Because, did I say my eyes weren't, weren't what they used to be? Yeah. So anyway, it's a, it's a great idea. So I want you to understand as you think about this, that what we're talking about influences that Bible you have in your hand. Because if you're a person that says, I'm King James, I grew up with King James, it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> then you're using, you're using one manuscript, it's called a TR, the Textus Receptus, which means received text, but it's part of the majority text family. If you're not, if you're using the NIV, NASB, one of the more current English translations, you're influenced by the Westcott-Hort method, which I don't agree with. All right, so the Hort is the essence of the theory is that the Alexandrian test type has the oldest manuscripts, all papyri, and the two oldest unseals. Remember, all uppercase, that's what that means. And the oldest manuscript has the correct reading. That's the key. The oldest unsealed manuscripts, there's two of them. Now, that goofy symbol is the Hebrew Aleph. Why they used a Hebrew letter for a Greek New Testament to tag, I have no idea, but that's what that is. And it's, the name of that manuscript is called Sinaiticus, and it was busted up. There's some of it in St. Petersburg, and it was found in St. Catherine's Monastery in the deserts of Egypt, where they don't get any rain. And there another one is called Vaticanus, which has the letter B. So in Westcott Hort, if Aleph and B agree, then that's the original. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Oh, a, a, I'll call it A and B agree, even though there is an A. But if all of them B agree, that's the original reading. That's what it looks like. Notice all the spaces between the words. Now, you'd say, I don't know how they did that. Well, that's because they read Greek for a living. 
They really did. That was normal. And so, you know, I, I, I don't worry about after I go to be with the Lord, my kids reading my notes on my quiet time notebook because they won't know what I wrote because I don't know what I wrote. My handwriting is so bad, but these guys actually tried to do a good job. All right, so now how did it work? So this is a copy flow. This is a diagram of what we call a copy flow. So you got the original right here. All right, so then somebody made a copy, and then there were copies made, and see it came down to B, and there's Olive. And then we come, whoa, down there's A and C, and then Western, remember that's Rome? There's copies, and then they did the translation into a, the, what they call the Italian or the, the Vulgate, the Latin. And then you can see these copies here, and then there's D and G. And then there's this thing right here called Lucian's Recension. Big fancy words. Byzantine archetype, meaning that was the first one. What is that all about? Well, I'm about to tell you, you'd think. Westcott and Hort proposed a theory that Lucian of Antioch created a revised New Testament text between 250 and 312 A.D. So they basically said, this guy went out and did the first critical text. And everybody in the entire Roman Empire threw away their old scrolls that they've used for 150 years and used this one. Now, how many of you, I know we're all suspicious. If an expert tells us something now, we believe it, don't we? <laughs> Why did they need that? Because the Byzantine text disagreed with their theory. Now, you think, well, why is it so obvious? Well, part of it, if you go read online, you got people that are out there that are like King James-only people, and they say Westcott and Hort, they came up with this idea in the seance with the devil. I mean, that is not helpful <laughs> to say stuff like that. I mean, people kind of like, enough of this guy, I'm not listening to him anymore. So one of the things, if you're going to be a whack job, don't tell everybody you're a whack job. It's just, it's just a rule of thumb, I would think. So anyway, it's a theory. I mean, and there's, there's very, you know, people here at Christ Chapel and leadership or whatever who would, would agree with this. I don't. I don't see, I don't see if I came to you with it. I don't see you guys rushing out and buying this Bible right here. Because you've got this Bible right here that your mom gave you. You're not going to throw it away. It's just not going to happen. And especially, you know, we tend to think everything in our own mindset. Do you know that they got every, almost everywhere they needed to go by walking? Think about that concept. I need some milk. I'm going to get in the car and go to the store. They walked. It takes a long time to move things. And they didn't just say, I'm going to lay it on my scanner and print it. No, they wrote it. Well, you know what? They didn't have the opportunity because... They didn't own Bibles. That's why the scripture says, pay attention to the reading of God's word because not everybody had their own copy. So now the majority, the essence of it is the Byzantine text type had the majority of the manuscripts. The majority of the manuscripts has the correct reading. And so there's strong, diverse evidence. So I'm, I'm got, I think I'm supposed to say amen in about 15 minutes. So here we go. Vast majority of the manuscripts are here. The vast majority of the manuscripts agree. That's why they use that BYZ thing. And the originals were written in or to the Byzantine area. Think about that. The originals were written there. They were sent there. But somehow the best ones ended up in the deserts of Egypt? Really? 
the Egyptian papyri older than Aleph and B often agree with the Byzantine text against the Alexandrian. So that even then the theory doesn't necessarily hold together. And then Aleph and B show a tendency to delete text like Mark 16. And they even leave space for the missing text. What do you think about that? If somebody's making a copy and they leave space, what does that tell you they're copying from? It tells me that they have something else that's even older that we don't have anymore. So here is the transmission method. See, the Alexandrian archetype is probably just an eddy. Some, you know, got, it somehow got over here out of the way of the mainstream. The Western, remember, there's not much, but the original is just reflecting the Byzantines, the big flow. So keep moving. So this is actually from the notes from this text. That's why it's crooked. Um, from the UBS 3 on John 7, 53 through 8 through 11. The woman caught in adultery. All right? I'm going to show you a couple things on it. First, you can't, my hand is, is, can't hold it through here, is, is they say omit it because Aleph and B say omit. But they actually say ignore that. So the evidence for omitting that is two papyri and those two unseals. But in there they say ignore that. We think you should leave it in there. Well, that's kind of weird. Even the scholars don't follow Westcott Hort. So it's kind of strange. So let's go on. So here's the same passage, same information, but you notice it says include. There's the A. There's the BYZ. Lots of evidence. Lots of evidence. It's given church fathers and quotes and things like that. So why is this? Well, we'll go on. Evidence are the unseals, the minuscules, which are the, the up lowercase, the majority text, translation, and church father quotes. There's lots of data that say this story about the woman caught in adultery belongs in your Bible. So the UBS says include it. So it's in your Bible. But if you look at that passage, there may be a note in there that says, there's a note that says some early manuscripts dispute this. It's two, those two right there. And I'm going to show you pictures of both. So what about Mark 16, 9 through 20? The reasons to exclude Mark 16, the 4th century manuscripts, all of A and B, according to Westcott Hort, agree to exclude. A few church fathers, and I mean a few, not many. My comment is you should revise the note to say two earlier manuscripts out of 1600 omit verses 9 through 20. Would it have a different emotional impact if you read that note as opposed to the other note? You would look at it and go, why is this note in here? That's kind of how I feel. Reasons to include. The majority text includes the, the, that, those passages. Now look at this. It's a little, lot of words. Second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh century translations and church fathers included. And that's things before and after the age of those two manuscripts. Obviously, it's pretty predominant. The other thing is Codex Sinaiticus leaves space and it also has some other issues because the pages in question were fixes. You say, what do you mean they were fixes? Well, more than likely, whoever was copying, copied, went into Luke and then he does what we do. He had a senior moment and he copied the same thing again. And somebody said, duh, I got to take it out. So they took it out and they tried to fix it. Now they're trying to cram everything in because they like their books to be nice and clean. You only get, 
one shot. How many of you had, in school, your teacher said, double underline, and then you can write above it? Or now you have word processor. I remember when, when they got word processors at work, it was so great. We're going to save money on word processors because now we're not having to do all this redlining and stuff. Jim, you probably remember that. And what they didn't know is everybody was going to aim for perfection. So you're going to find one word wrong, you're going to fix it, and you're going to print the whole stinking thing all over again. Didn't save any money. All right, so there's space. And then the other one leaves space as well. The, the, the main thing is God can and does preserve his revealed word. I think God's on it. I think he is. We have to trust him. All right, here is Sinaiticus. Here is, oh, back up. This is the ending right here, okay? Notice he leaves space. Now, some people say, well, that's not enough room. This is where Luke starts right here. There's not enough space for 9 through 20. But see, notice he puts some doodles on here, right here. So he's, he's making a statement saying, I intend to end it here. Why would he say, I intend to end it here? So that nobody comes back and adds in some other verses. Because he obviously knew there's other verses. So that means he had another piece of paper telling him something different. And it gets better. The same thing happens in B. Notice, that's where it ends. This is the backside. And this is blank. He leaves space. He says, I don't like that. Now, why do you, what is wrong with the longer ending in Mark? Well, maybe it has to do with drinking poison and snakes biting you, right? Some of those things just sound kind of hard to handle. But did a snake bite the Apostle Paul and he shake it off into the fire? Well, maybe it belongs there. I'm not going to go out and drink any poison and have any snakes bite me. If a snake shows up in my yard, it dies. It dies. It's its own fault. If, if it hadn't been born a snake, it wouldn't die. But it decided to be born a snake, so it dies. I have a very simple rule on snakes. So the minority report is, include Mark 16, 9 through 20. So I wanted to give you that. And let's see. So summary. We have 5,000 plus manuscripts of the New Testament. 5,000 of them. Many copies are close in age to the original. Many of them. The vast majority of the manuscripts agree. And 95% of the variations are insignificant. And what I mean by that is spelling, word order, things like that. And doctrines are never based on disputed passages. The New Testament has been preserved. So what's the application? Where do we go from here? This is why I brought the Bibles in also. Trust but verify. Ronald Reagan used to say that about the Soviets. And it's a very good phrase. Trust but verify. Online translations can change without warning. How many of you use Bible Gateway? Some of you do. It's a great site. Lots of choices. They try to force you into their product, which is the New International Version. And uh, remember, when the NIV uh, changed their translation, they took all the, the he's and made them persons that, out there. They didn't, put out, they didn't make a big, huge announcement they were going to do it. But what they did is if you use the NIV as your translation of your choice in Bible Gateway, they changed it to now you're using it. And I remember one of the pastors preached a sermon and quoted the NIV. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. And sure enough, somebody else mentioned they had changed it. And so I went down and mentioned to, to uh, that pastor 
you just got that off Bible Gateway, didn't you? And he said, yes, I did. That's the new modern translation where they have done violence to pronouns. But, hey, no, we don't have pronoun problems today at all. I personally like pronouns. Um, if somebody asks me what my pronoun is, I'm going to look at them and say, what are you talking about? So online translations can change. They're very useful, just trust but verify. Just be careful. I mean, Bible Gateway is great, but it'll, it tries to flip me back to the NIV. I use the 1995 New American Standard, this one right here, which, by the way, is losing all sorts of parts, which leads me to my next points. The new and revised translations can be helpful. It is helpful. I mean, they are helpful. Um, but keep your old Bible, paper Bibles anyway. Just don't dispose of them because you may want to have them someday. And um, it would be important to keep. So anyway, any of this stuff you want to look at, I'll show it to you if you want to come up. But um, any, um, I think I'm out of, I have one minute, so I can take one minute of questions. Anybody have any questions? Any of you who are still awake who has a question? <laughs> Yes, Lee. Is it controversial because the content is not elsewhere in the Bible? I mean, is there anything, you mentioned the snake thing, and of course, uh, mentioned baptism, for example. Mm -hmm. But is that inconsistent with the other scriptures? It's not inconsistent. Yeah, and some of the church fathers, um, the, in, in Mark 16, where it talks, it's, there's a little bit of issue about um, the women going to the tomb. And, the, and between two different um, Gospels, and one of the church fathers wrote an explanation of that. So he obviously had it. You know, this is, what, this is why they quote things like that. But some of it could be content. I don't want to dig into somebody else's motives. I mean, I think people are trying to be accurate. I mean, obviously you would want to use the oldest stuff because it just, just kind of makes sense. But when you have 2, 10, 20, you know, verses... 5,000 of them? Come on. I think God is sending us a message. Remember, the scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God. And you look out and you look at the immensity of the, the sky. You see the pictures from the Hubble telescope. What is God telling you? He's saying, I am so much bigger than you possibly can imagine. I have to tell you, I flew my first solo in an airplane Friday. And it was terrifying. Especially my first landing was bad. It's really bad. Bounced, and I was going off the runway, got off the ground finally. And then the tower was yelling at me because he thought I was somebody else. So finally we got that sorted out, which helped because it took my mind off of it, of what had just happened. But now I'm turned and I'm facing, looking at the runway. And you know what I did? I said, Lord Jesus, I could really use your help right now. And you know what? He did. He said, look at the windsock. And then I saw that the wind had changed from this way to this way. So when I was making all my adjustments, thinking that the wind was from the right, I, that's why I kept going to the left. And God is bigger than anything. And so some old guy in an airplane, he heard my cry for help. He can keep his word intact. You can trust it. Don't worry about it. And don't worry about using 
your new American standard or whatever you prefer. I'm saying don't, don't go back. I'm not saying go back to the King James. That's part of the other problem is a lot of people that, are, that like the majority text are all about the King James, and that's just it's a turnoff. So it, it, it's, a, it's a big negative. Any other questions? Yes. Um, yes, and the reason I do is because of this issue. The, and the pastor I talked to you about, that the, the church was not aware of the change in the NIV because the church used to give out NIVs, free NIVs, because they were, they were available. And that's why the church went to the ESV. It's because of the change in the NIV, so it's good for them. But in the ESV, you're going to see a lot of things deleted, like they delete the ending of the Lord's Prayer in the ESV. So that's why, for me... If I'm just going to be doing a lot of studying, studying, I'm going to use my 1995 New American Standard. And there's reasons to do that. Now, if I'm going to do some reading or just my quiet time, devotional time for the New Testament, I'm going to, I would use this. But I have, I have an ESV. I have no problem with the ESV. It's just, but I recognize when I see those, when I see those notes, I go, it's in. I'm on it. The thing I don't like is now they're starting to cut it. They're starting to delete it. And that's where I'm saying, hang on to your old paper Bibles. Because we don't know. Remember, there are people that are doing, making these changes for total godly reason. But when you open that door, there are people that will make changes for godless evil reasons. I mean, we see, look at our culture. I mean, seriously. And we're not immune. But remember, in Revelation, it's talking about the prophecies. It says, if you do this, you are so dead meat. That's my paraphrase. But he's talking about, the, he says specifically, words of this prophecy. But so, for me, I'm, I, I get scared about messing with God's word. Because I don't want to be trying to land an airplane and say, Jesus, I need your help. And then I, what I get is, you are so dead meat. <laughs> don't want that. Because it would really ruin Kathy's day. <laughs> Kathy was there, by the way, and she did pretty good, except she, it did cross her mind, I could be a widow. <laughs> but God was good. So I think I'm out of time. I'll pray and we'll be done. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Father, it's a real tedious subject to me. I find it interesting. I think it is an interesting topic. But what is much more interesting is Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is to be glorified. And Father, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, Jesus' words, will never pass away. And, Father, I am so thrilled about that we can trust your word. And I pray, Father, that we would trust you, that we would be wise, not overreact, but trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.